Tim Sweeney was the first person who articulated to me a vision for the meta that not only made sense, but he could deliver on. And Tim at Epic had a vision for how his underlying technology of Fortnite, which is the Unreal Engine, could create the meta. And to me, the meta was equivalent of having Facebook with a purpose. Any information in this podcast is not intended to promote or recommend any particular product or services offered by BFA Global Investors. It does not take into account the objectives, financial situation, or needs of any investor. Before making an investment decision, investors should seek professional advice. Welcome to Tomorrow's People, the podcast that showcases the expertise of the best and brightest investors in venture capital and private asset investing. In each episode, BFA founding partner Gavin Azekowitz will invite a leading investor across the BFA global investors ecosystem and discuss topics across venture capital, private equity, hedge funds, and more. Join us as we bring you the top minds shaping global markets and get you into the game of private asset investing. Good morning. It's Gavin Azekowitz here for our Second installment of Tomorrow's People. This is our third season, but spending more time now talking to really fascinating people in the investing space. And I'm thrilled, of course, to be chatting today with Bruce Stein. A few weeks ago, I sat at a lunch with Bruce in Malibu. We were supposed to have a quick catch up, get to know each other. A few hours later, I was still sitting there uh, sipping iced tea and listening to his stories about his journey, and I was absolutely fascinated. Bruce has had roles as diverse as president of Mattel, CEO of Sony Interactive, and he also founded a kids-focused media company called The Hatchery. And then for the last few years, he's leading Axiomatic, which is a vehicle for an illustrious group of billionaires to invest in the esports and gaming space. So Bruce, after helping them make a lot of money, become very successful in that space, has now jumped to forming his own firm called Juno, and they'll be raising their first fund in coming months. We'll talk about a little about that later. So welcome, Bruce. Great to see you on the sunny afternoon. And let's maybe begin at the beginning. You were at Chicago Booth School of Business, then you launched into advertising, and then quickly into toys. So what interested you as an advertising guy about getting into the toy business I was fortunate enough to never have to go the traditional route of doing a resume and then looking for something. I was actually at a packaged goods company after business school, classical packaged goods training, which was very typical of the way people pursued their marketing background from those days. And my ad agency, Ogilvy & Mather, hired me from their client at the time. And I was working as a consultant on both Mattel Toys and also Mattel and Television, which was their platform for gaming. What attracted me to the toy side is that I believe that media was an enormous reach tool and the vehicle by which you were going to build brand associations, which as a marketer is what you're focused on. Toys is one of those rare businesses that is super intensive in marketing. It's very concentrated the number of commercials you do, and they spend hundreds of millions of dollars in media where they're constantly iterating on the model. 
geographically to service certain retailers. This is really going back to the 80s when this was happening. Do you see some of those early themes from that period still playing forward for you? Several have remained the same. One of the things that's remained the same is I've always been focused on growth audiences. I prefer to monetize an existing large audience than create one. So kids, self-replenishing, replenishing. And from that standpoint, it represents a demo market the size of Texas. You can continually find new audiences there. What advertising was then was really a distribution mechanism for content that established brand connections. Today, what's happened is it's evolved from, let's just say in the 80s when it was three or four networks, then it went to cable and syndication and satellite. And there were hundreds of channels. And that brought up a new challenge, which was getting reach. You could build frequency in a schedule, but getting reach became more challenging. The late 80s started with the big gaming platforms, whether it was in television, Atari, Sega. And while some people looked at it as just a game platform, to me, it was a reach mechanism because it was distributing content and registering brands in a way that was novel to the space. And that has continued to evolve. So when the internet began to be a major influence on disrupting typical media digestion, instead of just getting it from the television, you always hear tales now about how much time people spend on Facebook and on other areas of the internet, even if it's social media. That's become a distribution platform. If you strip away everything else, if you strip away the social media, if you strip away the games, it's just distributing content and connecting people. And so now, if you're going to be an effective marketer, you have to be able to utilize all those tools or you're going to be limited in your reach. For those who don't know, Peter Gruber's the guy behind movies like Batman and he's chairman of the Golden State Warriors is a well-known business personality in the U.S. You must have shared some sort of love of technology and media that kind of led to what it looks like a decades-long relationship before you start Axiomatic. How did you guys know that you had chemistry in that first little period? I always had admired what Peter was doing in media. Even going back to when he got the Barris Game Library and then they sold what was Goober Peters to Sony. And at the time, I was running a toy company in Cincinnati called Kenner. And we were a small company compared to Hasbro and Mattel on the coast. Those were multi-billion dollar companies and we were really a hundred million dollar company losing money. But we had a specialty. We were great at doing a category called male action figures. And we did Every single category, every single property you could imagine was Batman, Jurassic Park, Rain Man, Star Wars, Alien, Terminator, Predator, Silverhawks. Our place in the market that we crafted was being the partner to studios because that let us compete with Mattel and Hasbro. It gave us throwaway promotionally that we didn't have. And I was first exposed to Batman through Warner Brothers. And at the time, we were going through a really difficult period as a company. We went in the eight years that I was at Kenner, we were spun off once by General Mills and then acquired twice. And one of them was in a leveraged buyout. And during the difficult time of that leveraged buyout, Batman came out and I had the foresight to pass on one of the biggest properties ever created. 
I remember it like it was yesterday, a date to see the movie. And when I saw the movie, I realized what a colossal blunder I had made and came out to California and went to Warner Brothers, who could not give Kenner the property because they'd already licensed it to another toy company. And then I sought out Peter Goober and I sat outside his office for about a day until he would see me. This was before you had to go through all the security to get to an office. You could just sit there. And I would say that the thing that makes him unique and the thing that we always found as a common bond was curiosity and a fascination for where media was going. And Peter's been a visionary that way. He certainly as a movie producer did that, but he's done far more than that in using media, not just in film, but television and he's written books and he's been a professor at UCLA. And we really shared a fascination for how media can influence brand perceptions and build enterprise values. So he gave me the Batman rights and I told him that we would more than double his royalties that he was receiving. And he understood that. And he said, okay, you don't have to call me back, but if you don't double my royalties, you're going to hear from me. And we wound up turning Batman from a $25 million product line into almost a $200 million product line for seven or eight years. And that began a relationship where we had a fascination with both intellectual property and distribution. So from there, I think we looked at another point in time doing the hatchery. And kids was not his focus. He really did not particularly do much in the kids business aside from Batman, which was more of a young adult movie than kid per se. Peter and I had a, not just a shared passion, but a shared curiosity where this was going. And then I would say in 2014 and 15, we started talking more about the video game space, which in my mind has been hiding in plain sight for decades. It's been around since the 70s and 80s and has never gone away. But I think it was relegated in its consideration by the investment community and others to a game business. It's a content distribution business. It's an interactive format that is unique. And in it, it creates all new kinds of enterprises. So for us, when we started, Peter and I, when we were talking about gaming, let's say at the time there was 250 million people that were fans of esports and 2 billion gamers total. That's, to me, is the size of our country. Right. And the challenge is that it's a global audience. It's not regional, which is different from traditional sports. But we looked at the evolution of professional esports and the growth in hours and audience, and we saw that as an opportunity. So we decided that we would invest in a team together. That was the start of Axiomatic then. How did that come to pass? When Peter and I decided to invest in the team, my thesis was it's the gaming audience we want, not just esports. Esports is a subsegment of gaming. So if you just want to invest in a team, I'm happy to do that. But if we want to do this the right way, as opposed to just saying buy a basketball team or a baseball team, he owns the Dodgers and he owns the Warriors and he owned LAFC. But this is an audience you're investing in. And that audience is going to take more than just investing in an esport team. And when we broaden the canvas to include demographics other than just esports, 
he wanted to bring in other partners that he thought would share a common passion and excitement. So in the first group that bought Team Liquid, it was Peter, myself, his partner, Magic Johnson, Tony Robbins, who's been a longtime partner, and both Peter and I were on his board. And then as we broadened the platform, then we started talking to other people that were investor friends of Peter's. He knew Ted Leonsis from the NBA. He knew Jeff Vinnick, who was formerly the chairman of Fidelity and owns the Tampa Bay Lightning, and Bruce Karsh from Oak Tree. And with all of them, I think in the beginning, you have to remember that this pitch started with talking about gaming and the broadcast of gaming like Twitch. And they said, you mean people really watch other people play video games? So I think all of those investors recognize the value of a demographic that is largely 18 to 34, highly educated, $60,000 a year incomes, mostly 50% plus married. And it had demographic tailwinds in audience, but it also had technology tailwinds. So there were a lot of pieces to grow on if we built a gaming investment platform, which was the hatchery. And that's how you and I get to know each other is through Epic. We obviously BFA have had an investment in Epic Games. How did your Epic journey start? How did that all evolve as part of this? One of the earlier investors in our company was Disney, which struck me as interesting because we met with Iger and he asked us a bunch of questions at our business. And he said, do you have any questions for me? And I said, yeah, why'd you do this? It just seems like you could, in a shower, have an idea to do gaming and esports, and that by the time you got to the office, you'd have decks and people and all of it done. He said, if we did it, we would have off-sites, consultants, we'd spend years looking at it, and in the end, it would look like Bambi. He said, and what we really do respect is audiences, which is why we bought Lucas and why we bought Marvels. We need people who are experts in that audience. And we think you're experts in the gaming audience. Similarly, that same group, which was at the time the Disney Accelerator run by Evan Richter and Eric Garland, they were our contacts. They invested in Epic Games. And there's this event where you meet all the other people in your class, if you will. And we met with Tim Sweeney at Epic Games and Paul Megan, who was the president at the time. And we struck a connection between how this business could be built out. Tim Sweeney was the first person who articulated to me a vision for the meta that not only made sense, but he could deliver on. There's dangerous buzzwords that come up in this industry. You hear them all the time, Web3, NFTs, and it becomes this thing people chase as if it's a panacea to all the ills of the business. What you have to be able to evaluate is it might be a lofty goal, but can the company execute to get there? And Tim Epic had a vision for how his underlying technology of Fortnite, which is the Unreal Engine, could create the meta. And to me, the meta was equivalent of having Facebook with a purpose. Instead of going to Facebook and looking up what your high school girlfriend is doing, you go there and you're finding like-minded people who want to game. And he was creating tools to build audience. So you could have the creative mode where you were enabled to build your own rooms. And then there were mods you were able to do within the game. 
And that to me is what makes a game sticky and a company able to generate more and more audience usage. I would just add one thing. When we looked at Epic, my view was the price we were paying was for Fortnite, but the value we were getting was unreal. So Fortnite was far more than a game and Epic was far more than Fortnite. So even though it was an investment in that company, we were really investing in a monetization of the audience. And all of his acquisitions have built towards that. Unreal Engine is an audience engagement tool, not just within Epic, but even as a broader tool and people using it in other applications. And is that sort of the magic here, right? Is that in your view, are we moving from a world where Somebody came up with Batman, put it on the screen. People went to see it and said that was great. And then maybe they go buy a toy. To today, you put the platform out and there's a bunch of engagement and it almost, the game evolves with the community. Is that the direction of travel that we're seeing today? They're diversifying in terms of the way consumers can interact there. It's not static. If it was, I think it'd be a lower growth business. But because it's allowing more ways to interact, more ways to socialize, it's providing more and more opportunities. And you're seeing some companies, I think Apple ProVision is a great example. When you think about where Apple has come, obviously the success is significant. In the 80s, it was a largely a laptop and computer company with less than a 5% market share. And today, over half their business comes from phones, and then another 20% comes from services. And I think that's the way successful tech companies will continue to evolve. They'll find new ways to engage people. And the same is true of gaming companies. So what Epic did that was earth-shattering. I mean, if you think about what's happened to the music business since file sharing first minimized the ability to buy CDs or be able to sell albums, the event that happened really during COVID, because everybody was home, was Epic did a concert with Marshmallow. And Marshmallow was an EDM music guy who literally wears a marshmallow on his head. And maybe the largest audience he had was 100,000 at a big event, maybe like a Coachella or something. But he did an event within the game platform that was Fortnite that attracted 12 million people at the same time. Amazing. It's maybe the third largest ever live event music business. And in the game, not only did he bring them for the music, but you could do something within that environment that you couldn't do in the traditional game, which was you could fly. And that almost crashed the internet when they did that. So they followed up with Travis Scott and they did a weekend broadcast of that. That was 25 million people. So you look at that... One thing to look at it is disruption, but it's epic growth. Where else could you get that kind of explosion of the same format of content, but expressed for an audience in a different venue? That's, to me, where the excitement comes in. If you just don't try to hold on to old business models, but you're willing to embrace new ones like they did, I think there's a chance to really build out other kinds of content formats within gaming. It sounds like within Axiomatic, you guys tried to do a lot of that. I know you said you looked at 250 companies and you invested in 14. And it sounds like 
you invested in 14, but they probably would have wanted to invest in 50 if it had been up to the ownership group. So what were the things that the owners were always excited about that didn't measure up? And what were the metrics that you looked at, like you've been talking about with Epic and people breaking their own model, that you saw that we're going to go the distance and really deliver superior returns? So we did look at over 250 companies in the seven and a half years and did 14 investments. I would say three or four maybe were stinkers. What was the gating item for me in buying liquid, Team Liquid, we bought it when the team values at that point were between 10 and 20 million. We looked at four teams and what attracted us to Liquid was that they had the worst Twitch deal. And we knew what to fix. So it was in some ways we could at a minimum get to par. But we believe there was growth engines in their studio and in their merchandising and in their content that yet to be had been realized. They were only doing about $2 million in revenue when Peter and I originally did the deal. And today their valuation has gone up more than 10x. That was our stake in professional esports. Again, Break it out by audience segment for gaming. So those people who are interested in professional esports, our investment was Team Liquid, and it's done really well for us. Then when we looked at other gaming formats, what Epic had in simplest terms was two different businesses. One, which was the game title business, that was Fortnite. But they had also an enterprise solution in the Unreal Engine. And for us, that gave us some mitigation of title risk. No matter who you are, you cannot pick the right title all the time. But if you have another business model, as Epic did, where they were selling tools to developers from which they would get a royalty share in Unreal, and it was far ahead of Unity and everybody else in terms of its degree of sophistication from when we started with Unreal 2 and now it's at Unreal 5. Now they're servicing architecture. They're big developers in the movie business. That's what we were investing for. The price we paid was more for the game. It's such an interesting point, right? Because I don't think people recognize how difficult it is, even if you're experienced and crafty and even a little lucky to get a title to work. It is so much luck. When you look at that theme and you bring ourselves up to date, Are you seeing an evolution of new platforms? Are you seeing new paradigms that are as exciting and you're taking those forward as you're thinking about your new fund and new investment opportunities? You're asking a question of a curious mind, which is, I think, the right way to approach this space. You have to initially be open to looking at redefining your terms before you can look at what the right way to monetize it. So let me give you an example. Invested in a company called Three Black Dot, which took a very simple game that they reskinned Subway Surfer and they called it Zombie Killer Squad. So it was very cheap to minimize. It was a free-to-play mobile game. And the only promotion, we talked about advertising before, their only promotion was influencers. So they created a business model that had five influencers, people that just put up videos of themselves playing games and people that you probably are not familiar with. I mean, people like Steam Nanners and Cupquake and Tom and Evan, but they have probably each 10 million subscribers. 
So maybe in total there were 15 million subscribers, and these influencers played the game for their audiences, and it crushed it. No other promotion but using the influencer economy. We had to find in our group, and we have brought in one of the creators of Three Black Dot, Luke Stapleton, and brought him in because that's a different sensibility. You can't come to that, I think, and try to learn it from scratch. You need somebody who has grown up using that audience, and he is facile in that area. And that adds to our ability and the fun for Greg and I to be able to attract companies because we can bring the value of influencer experts and others that are in our group who just add incremental value. It's so interesting, right? Because I think that is using and seeing companies that are using all of these new tools in efficient and innovative ways is spectacularly interesting. You mentioned Greg, and that's Greg Richardson, who's your partner at Juno. I think you and Greg came together originally as an advisory business, and you were probably lots of demand for you guys in the gaming and media space. So what caused you after you had met to decide now is probably also the time to launch a fund. The reason that I left Axiomatic is after we had inside the company invested about 120 million, but we did SPVs that were more like 300 million. Our group said, we're satisfied with how much we have invested in the business. We don't want to do more. So we want to harvest what we have. That really wasn't my goal. My goal was to do more building and investing because I spent 40 years as an operator and I enjoy the process of investing and building. But during that time, what happened is we at Axiomatic, we bought the team and a franchise, League of Legends. And during that time, Activision was doing a game called Overwatch League. And they were selling it as a game that traditional sports team owners could own in their city and have a business that would just say dovetail with their existing sports businesses. I didn't buy it. I thought the price of the franchises was way too high. And I thought the economics in the league were disfavorable to team owners. And so I had to resist team owners who believed in Activision and Bobby Kotick's vision. And they wanted to buy an Overwatch League team. And I said, you can buy it on your own. But we're not going to do it. I'd rather pay more, more than the price they were asking, but once it's proven itself. And I'd rather see how the franchise model works with the biggest game in the world, which is League of Legends. There's 100 million monthly active users. Greg, at the same time, unbeknownst to me, was going through a similar kind of discussion with his ownership group that wanted to buy an Overwatch League franchise. He also because he comes from the gaming business, which is where I come from, was focused on where the audience was and the pricing and the model of the franchises for Overwatch League. And so both of us found kindred spirits and people who said, we want Overwatch to succeed. We want to pay more later on because we have to see what's there. A lot of (laughs) different genes and investing go into it, but FOMO was not one that I was struck with. So I wanted to wait and he wanted to wait. And we wound up sharing perspectives on an industry. He grew up through EA and Elevation. And we found that we were aligned in our excitement, but patience with how technology and games evolved. And actually he started Juno and the advisory side. It's not where most of my activity, I'm focused on the fund because 
That's really what I've been doing is operating and investing. The thing I've been surprised about is how many companies that are in the growth area we're focusing on like that we have both capabilities. So if you think about what makes a fund succeed, it's deal flow and decision-making. So if we were able to replicate, to some extent, our percentage of hits within our investment, we were comfortable that both of us have had good abilities to discriminate between better and not-so-good investments. It's fascinating. Maybe just to close out, I'm interested in what the two or three major thematics that you're watching carefully and you think investors should be thinking about over the next few years in terms of the digital media and gaming space? What are the things that sort of sit front of mind for you? There's esports teams and there's infrastructure. And all of those pieces are investable targets for us. As far as themes within those go, certainly one area that's fascinating to me as an area that's going to grow is the live service gaming area, which are companies that just don't make a title, but they spend years developing skins, weapons. They deal with that on a seasonal basis, and they build the audience based on multiple attachment points. Those companies are going to be the winners, in my mind, in the title space. In the gaming platform space, I think there are a number of opportunities of companies that are providing cloud gaming and infrastructure as well as betting that are still opportunities because the one thing about this audience that maybe I didn't mention up front is not only are they smart, married, wealthy, or $60,000 a year income, they're also not available on traditional media. So back to the original point of reach, traditional marketers can't reach this audience unless they're working in the medium where they populate. And that is interactive digital content. So for us, we're looking for things that are in the infrastructure play, different ways to do video gaming content, like I said, like the live service area. And as well as that, I still think that there is new audience opportunities. You don't have a well-developed audience for a number of minorities. There are geographies that have still to develop globally. And then there are the tools that present a unique challenge. Gaming is the one business that is global, not just from its outset, but in its nature. People can compete 24-7. You can't do that in professional sports. You can't go out unless you can find... 17 other people for a baseball game or enough people for a soccer game. This is available 24-7 and globally. We're looking for tools that optimize those components that are still being developed. Fantastic. Such a great conversation, Bruce. So appreciate your time today. I learned a lot and I'm looking forward to seeing you again in person. But in the meantime, have a great afternoon and thanks so much for your time today. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Tomorrow's People on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or Amazon Podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.